This week's episode is also sponsored by NatureBox. Go to naturebox.com slash weeds for 50% off your first order. The following podcast contains explicit language. I think we should talk about Trump's so-called good 20 minutes. That's the the weedsy angle. Yeah. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds, Vox's policy podcast on the Panoply Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, uh, joined by uh, Sarah Cliff and Ezra Klein, as usual. And we have a, a spectacular white paper of the week for you coming up later. I'm That's, so excited. That is probably what people are most excited it to hear a, about this week. This is a piece of research that I have been waiting for <laughs> years for somebody to do, and I'm, I'm glad that it, it has been done. I and mean, they, all election cycle, people are waiting for this week for the Weeds' white paper of the week. It's such a good white paper, though. Like, it's <laughs> so... Everyone will understand in, like, I don't know, like 30, 40 minutes why It is why basically the Donald Trump debating Hillary Clinton of white papers. Speaking of which. But before we get to it, <laughs> Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton debated on Monday. I see how you did that. In a, a policy-laden, weedsorific uh, discourse, um, mostly focused, no, I mean, in all seriousness, it, it was largely focused on, on Hillary Clinton sort of trolling Donald Trump in various subtle ways and him kind of looking like an irritable jerk. Uh, being testy with her, with the moderator, fidgeting, rolling his eyes at weird moments, um, debatey kind of stuff. But I think what we want to talk about is the beginning of the debate, where I would say estimates vary as to whether it was 20 or 30 minutes of time during which Trump mostly talked about trade and how he was going to bring jobs back and that Hillary Clinton did NAFTA, which was the worst trade deal of all time. And and there was a, a semi-consensus among journalists watching it, both both sort of lefty journalists and like just campaigny journalists and certainly like Trump enthusiasts, that, that that was like a good moment for Trump. And that if only he could have stayed on track denouncing NAFTA, like he would have hit it out of the park. And, and I think Ezra, Ezra wrote a smart piece about this. It was, to be fair, a slight copy of your smart piece on it from earlier in the day, but with a, a different framing. So the thing that I want to say as a framing device here is that the hard thing about debates is that there are two things happening simultaneously. There is the part of the debate that you could be judging even if you had it on mute, right? You, you will sometimes hear people who are very good at television say that you can tell whether someone is winning a debate or a host is succeeding in their job by watching it on mute, just seeing their body language, seeing their apparent command of the stage. So there's that going on. There is that sense of who is commanding the, the moment. And then there are the actual words, right? What the words mean, what they mean when put together, whether they are true, what happens if you read them later. And the first 30 minutes, 20 minutes of the debate, Donald Trump was stylistically very dominant. He, uh, as Sarah and her team noticed or counted, he interrupted Hillary Clinton 25 times in 26 minutes. He was confident. He sounded like a guy who knew what he was talking about. And then you stop and you read what he said. And it was really, really, really uninformed. So... what Trump did, the, what happened in this section of the debate was that the moderator began, Lester Holt began, by asking, essentially, how would you bring prosperity to America? I think the specific question to Trump was, how would you put money back in workers' pockets? And Trump went on a riff that showed his basic theory of the economy, which is quite unusually a very trade-focused theory of the economy. A lot of Republicans tend to have a tax-focused theory of the economy. Um, a lot of Democrats have a demand-focused theory of the economy. But but Trump really thinks about trade. And so he talked about China devaluing its currency. He talked about uh, his friend who's in manufacturing, tells him Mexico is building the biggest factories in America and taking all our jobs. He talked about how jobs are fleeing America to these other countries like China and Mexico. When Hillary Clinton tried to make her argument, he really attacked her on NAFTA, said it was the worst thing, the worst trade deal ever in the world, certainly ever in America. He hit NAFTA again and again and again and again. I I watched it and I also thought Trump was coming off pretty strong. But it was just all bullshit. 
So a couple things here. Number one, uh, estimates of NAFTA's effect on the economy differ. But there have been a lot of reviews of the literature on this. And they tend to find very modest effects in one direction or another. So there was a, a review of 11 econometric studies. It showed that in America, the effects probably ranged from a very small bit of wage suppression for blue-collar workers to an overall wage bump of 0.17% for workers overall. Uh, there was a review of literature done by the Congressional Research Service. They found a very small positive effect on output, on manufacturing. They found basically no effect on employment, a small positive effect on wages. And and we can argue. I'm actually not really trying to argue whether NAFTA was a good or a bad trade deal. What I am saying is that the evidence is overwhelming, that it just wasn't a consequential driver of the American economy in those following years. And you can see that in a broad way. When NAFTA goes into effect or is passed in January of 1994, unemployment is 6.6 percent. In January of 2000, it's 4 percent. So it's just very hard to say that this was a rolling economic calamity for the country during which time unemployment plummeted. Uh, similarly, China is not currently devaluing its currency. It's propping its currency up because it's trying to keep uh, investors from fleeing a real estate bubble. The biggest factory in the world, as Matt pointed out in a, in a piece, is being built by Tesla in Fremont, California. The current biggest factory in the world is by Boeing in Washington state. There was just nothing about this that was true, but more broadly, it was theoretically very misguided. It, Trump seems to believe that America has a manufacturing-based economy. I mean, you really would have thought from this that the jobs in America are manufacturing jobs. And we have, a at this point, really a services-based economy. And if you're thinking about how to deliver prosperity and how to give people a raise, how to make jobs that are currently low-wage into jobs that are high-wage, you need a plan for service-based jobs, jobs like working in home, working as a home health care aide or um, working in food services or retail or, or these other things. And so this to me was simultaneously, again, a stylistically strong moment. But I think part of what we in the media should be doing is telling – is helping people make somewhat more informed judgments on what they're hearing. And I think the, the – the more informed judgment on what Trump said is that this is the part where Trump is supposed to know what he's talking about. His whole pitch is he's a savvy businessman who knows how the economy works and knows what is needed to bring jobs back. And he, he doesn't. He doesn't know how the economy works. He doesn't know how to bring jobs back. And, and that feels to me like a consequential fact of his opening remarks. I want to go deeper into the weeds of this first 26 minutes, which is a part I watch very closely because we are tracking these interruptions. And I actually think there is a part where it did matter, where the style did matter. So so one of the things I was watching this debate very much with an eye towards the interaction between the candidates because we were running this interruption tracker. And if you go back and watch the first 10 minutes, it's actually there's not much interrupting. And it was... It showed Trump interacting with another person in a very different way than I had ever seen. And I think that that matters to someone who's running to be president, that a lot of what you do as president is interacting with your aides, with other heads of state, with people who are in positions of power, that a lot of that's a lot of the job of being president. And if you zoom in on like the very beginning of the debate, I do actually understand a bit why there was a sense of saying, this is going well for Trump because he wasn't really interrupting in the beginning. It was there was the weird sniffling or whatever was going on with that. But it was a much more subdued. It was not like the the host of The Apprentice Trump. It was like a different version of Trump. And I do think substance matters, but also how you interact with people. It was interesting watching the first few minutes of the debate. I was messaging with the other reporter working on that saying, like, I don't know if this is going to work. We're not having an inter any interruptions. Like, clearly that that was fixed very quickly. But it. it it spoke to how he was interacting with people. And I think that does matter when we, we consider how people, and I think we'll talk a little bit more about this, how people prepare for the presidency, how people are in the presidency. Like that is part of the job. And that's why there's some worry about having someone like Trump, like someone who Hillary Clinton describes as easily baited by a tweet where, where we did have like a quick demonstration of the Trump who was able to be in this environment and not not be as much of a character as he typically is. So something that I, I do wonder about this that is noteworthy is that one reason that that sequence went, I think, stylistically well for Trump is that some of what Trump said 
that's wrong is unusual to Trump. I have never before seen a politician bold enough to just say that the building the biggest factory in the world in Mexico when they aren't. <laughs> um, that, like that's very Trumpy, right? Like I think a lot of politicians know that the public's prior disposition is that something bad is happening to the American economy that is the fault of Mexico, and they will try to say things that cater to that belief. Uh, but the typical political approach has been like, okay, you know what beliefs you want to cater to, and then you want to find something accurate you can say that's like maybe misleading, but like fits in it. But the Trump method is like just say the biggest factory in the world is being built in Mexico. <laughs> like it's being built, and you could tell that like Hillary, you know, you do a certain amount of preparation, but when you go up against someone right. who just might say anything at all, it's hard to prepare for anything. So I was sitting there with my computer, and I was like. I really doubt that the biggest factory in the world is <laughs> right. being built in Mexico because uh, I know something about Mexico. But for all I knew, the biggest factory in the world was in China, was in Germany, right? So I Googled it. It turns out that the biggest factory in the world is in the United States and that it's going to be surpassed by another factory under construction in the United States, which, like, I bet I Hillary wishes she had known. <laughs> but, you know, what, what, what are you going to do? But it, another aspect of it, though, that Trump had in common that, that I think is – actually more important than this trivia, is simply this like the monomaniacal focus on the manufacturing economy, right? I was I was reviewing some, some old charts and, and it's not just nowadays. In 1965, more people worked in the service sector than worked in the manufacturing sector. Uh, back then, it was kind of close. Um, now it's not. It's, it's not even remotely close. So do you, do you know just it, as yeah. an approximate, what is the ratio at this point? I don't, uh, I don't know if it's It's got to be five or six to one. I, I mean, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure exactly. But if you are looking at we could double manufacturing employment in America. I mean, we couldn't double manufacturing employment in America, but even if we did, the vast majority of people would not get factory jobs, right? And it's not just Trump, though, who zeroes in on this, right? So one one thing that happened was that Clinton was giving her spiel, but she did not. And I don't know why this is. I don't know what the like political rhetoric is because it's not just her. It's nobody who I have ever heard in politics says we need to increase the amount of high paying, decent jobs that are available to Americans. And that is going to happen in the service sector, right? She did not talk about a plan to increase the like uh, goodness of working in a restaurant or in a retail store uh, or in a hospital or in a school, the, the kinds of places where people are are working. Uh, ben Castleman at uh, 538 had a good piece a while back, uh, but, but that I think is important where he was arguing that what we miss – about the industrial economy is not the factories, but is is the labor unions. Um, I'm not sure that's literally true, that that's what people miss. But like when you think about the whole narrative of, oh, well, these good jobs have gone and they've been shipped overseas. Well, why were they shipped overseas? They were shipped overseas because the foreign workers are paid less. Um, but if the foreign workers- And they're not very good jobs overseas. Right. But if the foreign workers are paid less, that goes to show that it's like the job is not inherently- a good one, right? Whereas like merger and acquisition bankers are paid a lot of money everywhere. Like Chinese M&A bankers get, get a lot of money. That is a job because there's huge sums of money at stake. Most people can't do it. Like it's a good job. Uh, if working in a factory was an amazing job inherently, nobody would bother going to Mexico or, or Vietnam or, or China, right? The, the jobs paid highly in the United States because we had legal, political, and institutional structures that made them pay a high wage. And you could try to apply those those structures to other sorts of institutions and, and sites of employment. Um, and, you know, Clinton doesn't say that. Uh, Barack Obama doesn't say that. Um, instead, there is a lot of a big buy-in by everyone on like we're gonna we're gonna bring manufacturing work back to the United States, and the Obama administration has in fact overseen a, an increase in, in manufacturing employment, a, a modest one, but but a real one. But it's hard to beat a like realistic assessment of how much manufacturing employment you're going to create 
uh, with against like Trump's just like fantasies, right? Because the the reality is it's just not that promising. So when you uh, buy into the idea that like what we have to talk about is how many factory workers we're going to have, but then you restrain yourself to saying things that aren't crazy, you really put yourself at a disadvantage. And and you and I do think that I mean not just like her personally, but like. People who do public policy in the United States need to somehow get the conversation onto something else. If you're anything like me, you know, sometimes you want a snack. And if what's around to snack on is junk food, you're going to eat junk food. And it's, it's not great. Um, so if you want to sort of live a healthier life, you can start snacking healthier with NatureBox. Uh, they make snacks that actually taste great and they're better for you. They're created with high quality ingredients that are free from artificial colors, flavors or sweeteners. So you can feel OK about snacking. Uh, I, I like some of their dried fruit stuff. They got great apples. They got great pears. Um, they also have some, you know, slightly more indulgent pretzely things in there that, that I also uh, I also go for. And they've recently made their service even better. You can order as much as you want, as often as you want, with no minimum purchase required, and you can cancel it at any time. Uh, so it's really simple. You go to naturebox.com, you check out their snack catalog. There's over 100 snacks to choose from. They're always adding new stuff. So you choose what you want. They deliver it right to your door. It's easy. With Naturebox, you'll never get bored. There's new stuff there each month. It's inspired by real customer feedback. And if for some reason something comes, you don't like it, they will replace it for free. That's a good opportunity to try out something new. Um, so right now you'll save even more because NatureBox is offering our fans 50% off your first order if you go to naturebox.com slash weeds. So you go to naturebox.com slash weeds. Uh, that way we get credit. You get 50% off your first order. Naturebox.com slash weeds. Trump came out and said NAFTA is the worst trade agreement ever in yes. the history of the universe. And Hillary Clinton did not say no, <laughs> NAFTA was a good trade agreement that economists mostly think had a small positive effect on wages and manufacturing output. She kind of danced around it. She has in the past talked about uh, you know, how she would like to increase worker standards in future trade agreements and fix NAFTA. Then Trump came and said, and, and, and the worst thing since NAFTA is the TPP, which you helped negotiate, and, and Clinton, who has now turned against the TPP, which she did help set up uh, in what I think most people believe and, and which I believe to be a fairly craven maneuver. Uh, she's like, no, I, 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 don't, I don't support the TPP. And there is a broad force right now where trade agreements trade broadly has become unpopular. And there are not many politicians and certainly none of the ones currently uh, who are a major party's nominee for president who are willing to defend it. And so one reason Trump seemed strong on NAFTA is that when he hits Clinton on NAFTA, she doesn't hit back. Right. She doesn't say, no, you're absolutely wrong about this. Like we want an interconnected world and the way we're going to have good jobs is trading with our partners and not letting China set the rules. It's not even her position anymore. And so that I think has, has left her in a tough position. You saw the opposite dynamic when you got to taxes, right? There Trump says, I have a great tax plan um, and it's going to be the biggest tax cut in the world. And it is a very, very, very large unpaid for tax cut. And Hillary Clinton says, no, your tax plan is bad. I'm going to raise taxes on people. That's going to be better. The other reason I think this is hard for Clinton and the Democrats is that I don't think Clinton does authentically oppose trade agreements. So, so she's in this place where she is on the one hand not defending them, but she also doesn't hate them. She wants to have a very nuanced position about what makes a good and a bad trade agreement and there are not that many examples of the trade agreement that she wants to point to. She's not, again, saying TPP is an example of it. So that I think – Insofar as there is a real weakness for her there, I think the weakness is because she has carved out very, I think, in large part due to the Democratic primary, a very complex and hard to defend position on it. But that's also created this position where Trump just has a theory of this. It doesn't make any sense, but she doesn't really seem to have a, a counter to that. Theory. Well, one of the weird things about the role, because I've been surprised on the role trade has played in this election. Like, I don't remember it being as much of a thing. Mm -hmm. I guess we didn't have TPP going on. But there was this um, poll that Politico did earlier this week. I just pulled up the numbers from it that suggests people aren't paying as much attention. So they pulled on, like, have you heard of TPP and do you support it or oppose it? So 11 percent support, 18 percent oppose, 70 percent never <laughs> have heard or read anything about it. And I, I guess... I don't have a good theory of like why trade has become such a dominant issue in the debates in a way it doesn't like this seems to suggest 
that it's not as dominant among the general population? I mean, maybe one thing that comes to mind is it's a, it's a proxy for a lot of the like tensions that are coming up in this election over it kind of fits into immigration and worries about worries about that and kind of some of the racial tensions that have come up in this election. But I've been surprised at how frequent it is, particularly, I think, oh, because, you know, it's something voters care about. But then there's also this data suggesting voters aren't especially interested in the issue of trade and kind of, I don't know if you guys kind of think about why it was such a big part of the debate in the first place. Well, that, that, I mean, that is why I think, synthesizing the, the last few things both of you guys said, right? Like, I think that what Hillary Clinton has done over the past, you know, 10 years of her career is just play TPP as a totally cynical political thing. I mean, both when she was for it, when she was against it, whatever. And I think that that is like the right thing to do. Like if a member of Congress asked me and he was like, can you name me an issue, Matt, that is like not that important and that I should just do something <laughs> craven on for the sake of winning elections? I would say, you know what is not important? <laughs> the Trans-Pacific Partnership. It is like really it, – it doesn't matter that much if your allies in the labor movement want you to be against it. Like go for it. <laughs> but if you think you need some campaign contributions, like it, it does – it's not important. Um, so obviously – Hillary Clinton is not going to stand up and say, like, yeah, I flip-flopped on this because it doesn't matter. But I think she needs an answer on the economy that speaks to something that is true and that I think is authentic and that she does believe, which is simply that fussing around about trade policy is not going to move the needle for tens of millions of Americans who work in restaurants and stores and hospitals and schools who clean houses and drive buses and and she should she's normally good at this kind of thing but just like name check all the kinds of people who Donald Trump is not talking about when he's like harping on and on and on about this stuff, say something good about America. I mean, if she can like bring in like we're in fact building an enormous battery factory and like all these other things. But like we have industrial robots in our factories. People are not all going to work in them. We have millions of home health care aides. We have millions of people who need affordable child care and we can create jobs taking care of those children, taking care of our senior citizens, rebuilding our infrastructure like this fucking cracks on the sidewalk everywhere like this. <laughs> It's not like there's nothing anyone could be doing in America or no jobs that that could be better. And you want to turn the page off this. There was this um, Ed Kennard, uh, the uh, old uh, Mitt Romney provocateur, uh, did this this talk today uh, or maybe it was yesterday where he was basically saying – capitalists used to have this like political alliance of convenience with religious conservatives and that's run out of steam. So now if we want to save capitalism from the redistributionists, we need to make a, a cynical alliance with xenophobes who hate trade and immigration, which is great if you're Ed Kennard, author of The Upside of Inequality. <laughs> but if I were a Democrat, I would like take that speech very seriously and be like, what's going on here, guys, is that Mr. Billionaire Landlord <laughs> would like you to blame Mexicans for your problems. But like he and his pals and then talk about tax. I mean, talk about whatever, right? I mean, Hillary Clinton has a plan to get more people health insurance. Like Donald Trump wants to take everyone's health insurance away. Um, if it was me, like, I would love to see a rousing defense of NAFTA. Personally, I enjoy avocados. I think it's great <laughs> that they are now available all year round, uh, thanks to Bill Clinton's good offices. But, you know, I, I don't think avocado toast is is going to necessarily win her the election. Uh, even, even Bernie bros, who it seems to me, in fact, uh, love imported foreign goods, uh, y- you know, are, are not going to embrace that. But it's just, it's just a funny thing to dominate discussion of economic policy. I think I think there are a couple of reasons that it does. And one, I, I I think the broader point you're making is is correct. And I recognize that I'm somewhat uh, violating it by by diving further into this trade thing. But I do just want to I think there are a couple of interesting dynamics here that speak to things that influence our economic discussion quite a bit. So one of them, one reason I think Donald Trump specifically fastens so much on trade, and one reason it's a good issue for xenophobes and so forth, is that, one, Trump likes to imagine that all of being president will be deal-making. And trade deals really are deals. They are negotiations between two countries. And because those negotiations are uh, the benefits and the costs flow in both directions, there there are losers and winners in any given country, it feels very painful, the idea that you have 
lost some part of an industry to Mexico, which is a little bit different than you have lost part of an industry to the relentless impersonal forces of technological change, or you've lost some part of an industry to the cycles of the of of, of the economy because you had a recession. So that's one thing. I think that I think that trade deals they they feel concrete and they feel like America losing something to foreign adversaries in a way. It's sort of the economic version of war. Uh, the second thing is that unions are very centered in um, – and so traditionally have been very centered in industries that actually are uh, disproportionately hit by trade deals. And so one reason I think that Democrats have more focus on these and that Hillary Clinton, for instance, is you know bashing NAFTA as opposed to saying, yeah, on balance, I think – like other things my husband did, it was pretty good, is that the AFL-CIO really hates NAFTA. And she, you know, the AFL-CIO is an important constituency for her. And then I, I do think the thing you're talking about earlier, Matt, is a, is a big dynamic here. There is a lot of liberal nostalgia for the post-World War II manufacturing-driven, high-union-density economy. And a lot of these things get conflated and pulled together. But I think it gives... Liberals have very high sensitivity to losses of manufacturing jobs um, over and above losses of other kinds of jobs. And I, I think there continues to be – even though manufacturing output is up dramatically over it was 50 years ago, right? We are making more stuff in America than ever. We just have fewer people making it. There continues to be a hope that we will somehow restore that kind of economy and it speaks I think to a – a pessimism or a lack of vision about what is possible within the confines of the service sector economy. I, th I think that it is hard for people to believe that home health care aid will become a really good job. I, I don't think they see the path in a way that I think at one point they didn't see the path on manufacturing either. I mean, if you read histories of, of, of unionization, the early years of that, I mean, these were terrible jobs. One reason people were willing to fight and die for a union, it wasn't just because of wages. It was because of how incredibly unsafe these manufacturing jobs were, how many people would die or get grievously injured and then nothing would be done for their families. So, I mean, these were once extremely bad jobs, actually. Actually. And then they were, you know, through a tremendous amount of organizing and at sometimes very violent forms of organizing uh, made into better jobs. I think it's strange that we are so much more pessimistic about what I think is a somewhat more straightforward um, effort here. But, but somehow the language for it hasn't emerged or the examples for it haven't emerged or, or, or something has – made uh, – has created a salience to trying to go back to the thing we had as opposed to imagining the thing we could have. So one other thing I know we wanted to hit from the debate last night going out of trade is kind of this preparation gap that was pretty evident not just in the trade section but throughout the entire debate. And I know, Ezra, you wrote on this. But it was very striking in ways that I think matter in in ways that other campaign events don't, how the candidates – decided to show up for this. And I don't know, maybe I'll turn it over to you, Ezra, because you... I think this is wrote, a map. This is a map. So I'm going to hand it to me. All right. I can't tell the difference. Yeah, anymore. I mean... <laughs> <laughs> one of the dudes on the weeds. One of, the, one of those guys <laughs> on this podcast. You know, we, we, we saw reports from both before and even more so after the, the debate that, you know, Trump was not really preparing for the debate, that he was not sitting down with a briefing book rehearsing his lines and getting his marks and, and things like that. And there's always a lot of spin around debates. A certain element of it seemed like expectations lowering. A certain element of it seems like post hoc excuse making. Um, it's easy to focus on. There was like a report out today that like he and Roger Ailes were like joking around about uh, women in their lives or, or something. Um, but, I, but I think the essential core of this, which we all know in our hearts to be true, is that Donald Trump was not sitting down with a binder of like, these are the 50 things that we think either Lester Holt or Hillary Clinton might bring up. Here are some like accurate facts that connect to the policies that are on your website, right? Like he wasn't doing that kind of debate prep. And even if he does start to take the debate more seriously and try to game out more. How is he going to bring up Benghazi? Um, he's not going to be doing that kind of like traditional, like, here are my marks, here are my points, here's the stuff that is going to both zing in the moment and also check out the next day. Um, and Hillary Clinton, you know, clearly was. And you could see it in, in her domain, right, how she 
She, at one point, after having, I think, not found a good opportunity to bring up Alicia uh, Machado, she just brought it up at, like, an inopportune <laughs> moment because she realized she was running out of time, right? And there was, like, a plan. Uh, but other stuff, you know, she did. She she strung out, like, I'm going to whack Donald Trump for the $14 million loan he got. Um, when people did fact checks after the debate, you know, as usual, when somebody talks off the cuff for 45 minutes, they say a thing or two that's wrong. But there were no, like, gross errors or, like, huge willful distortions of fact because when you're prepared, you don't need to do that. Whereas Trump's strategy, um, the part that didn't work for him was that he wasn't able to get his attacks in because he didn't game it outright. The part that has consistently worked okay for him in the campaign is that, like, rather than study up what is, like, accurate and relevant that he can say, he just made things up or or went off on, on tangents. But I think it's worth, you know, considering that the debate is a debate. It's a, like a TV show. But being president is hard, right? If a flood hits the Gulf Coast and it disrupts an oil refinery and someone is saying there's going to be a gasoline shortage somewhere and someone else says, well, maybe you can, um, you know, temporarily suspend the Jones Act. And you have to like, like, (laughs) what is the Jones Act? Will there be a gasoline shortage? How many refineries were damaged? Like, it actually makes a difference. You can't just say something that sounds like it's a good idea. It has to be a good idea. And, and I think some reporters have gotten a little too arch about this over the mm-hmm. course of the campaign where they've been like, well, what we've learned here is that like voters don't care about policy details. Um, and on the one hand, obviously, they don't, right? I mean, no voter has ever spoken to me about whether or not they think it would have been appropriate to temporarily suspend the Jones Act. But people care about whether the policy outcomes work or not. Right. I mean, that's like the basics. You you could say that about anything, right? Like, oh, I went to the doctor and like, I don't care how the MRI machine works. And of course I don't. If you gave me some tedious explanation of like magnets and whatever it's in there, I'm like, who cares? Um, but whether or not the machine produces accurate pictures is like really, really integral, right? And to just kind of like blow past it is like a details. Who cares, right? Like that, that totally misunderstands what politics is for. So uh, I have a lot of thoughts on this. One is that one is that there are places where it's really dangerous because things the president says off the cuff are actually listened to carefully by our allies can create international incidents. I actually thought the literally scariest part of the debate was Donald Trump's section on foreign policy. Uh, Within a matter of sentences, he said that he both would support the NATO treaty and would abrogate it. He both said, yeah, he's for NATO. And then clearly had no idea what the NATO treaty was because he said that the the people in NATO, the countries in NATO need to be paying us more money to defend them and maybe we should reconsider. He then both said that he would not have a first use nuclear doctrine and then that he wouldn't take anything off the table, which you also you have to choose one of those two, which and that is nuclear weapons like that is not the place you want to be uh, very imprecise. So. One, I think that he could say things that would potentially suggest to somebody like Putin that maybe we would have one reaction when in fact we would have another or maybe we would not do something when in fact we would end up doing it. And and that stuff can be very dangerous. The other thing, uh, there's a lot of talk here about debate prep. And I think debate prep is a small fraction of what's going on. So Tim Urban, who's the the writer behind Wait But Why, has a nice metaphor for how you learn things. And and he talks about tree trunk knowledge. He talks about how when you you get to – when you try to dive into a subject, you need to first understand the basics of the subject. How do marginal tax rates work? You know, all – All that stuff that helps you understand how the machine fits together. And then you can start understanding the newest stuff. You can start understanding, you know, what Hillary Clinton just said on what she's going to do with the estate tax. And he he talks about that as sort of like adding on the branches and the leaves. What you do in in debate prep, debate prep, uh, is you add on the branches and the leaves to your tree truck knowledge. Hillary Clinton is not sitting down with binders and finding out for the first time that we have – nuclear doctrines, a triad. You know, this is not stuff that is new to her. When Barack Obama, who was a fairly new uh, entrant to the political scene in 2008, right, he had only been a national politician since 2004, 
he had been nevertheless since at least 2004 um, really studying hard on these issues. He wrote the book, The Audacity of Hope. And if you go look at that book, that is an extremely detailed policy book. So he had spent whatever it was, a year really diving into this stuff and getting a pretty deep level of knowledge that then when it came time to to add on, you make sure you have the details right, make sure you've got statistics at your command, you can do a lot with that. The problem for Trump, and, and in one way, in one place, it's bad that Trump couldn't focus on debate prep. And, and clearly what they were trying to do with him was to just give him some smooth attack lines. But he wouldn't be able – you can't cram this. It's not how it actually works. There are too many things are too complicated. He has not spent time over the last year getting brought up to speed. He has not methodically been developing his understanding of how Medicare works, of how the healthcare system works, of how the tax system works. I would love just one of the debate questions to be, Mr. Trump, could you please explain in detail your tax plan to us? I don't think he knows what his own marginal rates are in his own time. I am I would bet money on it. And I think this thing really matters because to to the point Matt was making about imagining the Oval Office meetings. When new information comes in, because that's what you're dealing with in those meetings, you need some kind of underlying model that helps you interpret it, right? You, you, you know, we the, the example of the Jones Act and refineries, you can use something I think even much bigger, right? NATO, which Donald Trump keeps getting wrong as far as I can tell. When information comes in about something Russia just did on the border of Ukraine, you need to know what that means in context of our alliances. You need to know what is our deal with Estonia. This stuff is not um, marginal knowledge to American politics and American foreign policy. It's core knowledge. And this is a stuff that not only does Donald Trump not have it, but he has not shown any interest in developing it. And while I, I think he could have been prepped better to be a better showman at the debate, right? His his ability to just put on the Trump show clearly flagged after the first 20 or 30 minutes. This is the work he hasn't done, and it's work he clearly just doesn't find that interesting. It is notable. I had forgotten this until, until this week, but Donald Trump fired his policy staff, or at least he didn't pay them, and so they all left, and then he didn't hire a new one. And what that the reason is that he didn't feel a need to be sitting down with them constantly and having discussions about policy. By contrast, John Cohen had a great piece at the Huffington Post really digging into Hillary Clinton's policy operation. And that is just a vast infrastructure run by the people Hillary Clinton spends the most time talking to, people like Jake Sullivan and Anne O'Leary-Yeah. And these things... This is a very deep characterological difference between the two candidates, and I think it it, it really matters. It really matters in debates, but it would really matter in the presidency because your ability to assimilate new information appropriately, your ability to hear what an advisor is telling you and weigh it against some set of priors depends on your having built up this tree trunk knowledge. He did not do it before he ran for president. He has not done it while running for president, and I don't see any reason to believe he would do it as president. Right, and you could – one of the things I've – seen suggested, I forget exactly where, but that you could outsource this, that you could like hire. And Trump actually suggested, so I'll hire the best people. And but at the end of the day, a lot of being president is like choosing between the best people. Like in the situation Matt sets up, you're going to have a lot of people suggesting, well, we should do X and we should do Y. And like at the end of the day, there are dozens of these policy decisions where it's like up to you to pick like Mm -hmm. which one we're going to do. And that's not that's not a decision making factor that you can that you can outsource to someone else that that kind of like rests very much with the president. And it's, you know, a good point that there doesn't seem to be like an interest in getting surrounded with um with those people. Yeah, I, I think George W. Bush showed us both like the promise and the peril of, of that method, right? Like he genuinely staffed an administration with like the people you would want to staff a Republican administration with, right? And it didn't work out that well for him at the beginning because he personally made like bad calls and like listened to Don Rumsfeld a lot and got the country into terrible trouble. And then in the later days of his administration when he was already super unpopular and people didn't care, he like pivoted away from the people who had like crafted terrible policies and and the situation got way better. You know, I mean, the the situation in Iraq really stabilized. They weathered this, like, economic disaster. Okay. Um, So it can work. There's just, like, the small part where, like, by accident they destroyed everything first. This is, I think, where where Sarah's going. But, like, Trump is not even doing that. 
Bush came onto the stage as like someone who people thought was a little like underseasoned and made a big show throughout his campaign throughout the first couple of years of his administration of like I got this guy and that guy and Colin and, and, Powell wait and he did he built out the team in a very deliberate way and it did at a, by a certain point in his administration it actually was working um but Trump is not like doing anything like that. Well, I said we've spoken a lot about Trump, but on the flip side of this, like Clinton was quite prepared. And I don't think in just like on the Trump scale, like she was came to the debate, a, a very unpredictable debate, quite prepared. And I think it kind of speaks to, I was kind of thinking of Ezra's profile of Hillary, of this idea of listening as a very important trait as president. And it's clear, like from this piece that John Cohen wrote at the, at the Huffington Post, clear from her performance at the debate that there's a skill that she has that you know, doesn't show up as much. It tends to be a gendered skill of listening that there are not a lot of places in in campaigning where this where you get a chance to show off that skill. Like you don't really show that off as much when you're doing campaign stops. But in a way, a debate is like a place to to showcase that, that you've listened, that you've taken the time to read, that you're reading the briefing books, that you're like doing the actual work you need to do to be able to make those decisions when they happen. And I think that gets a little overshadowed, but you know, and, like, it's easier to talk about Trump. He's, like, much more mm-hmm. abnormal um, for a presidential candidate. But at the same time, like, it, I think one of the things that gets less attention is that the level of preparation wasn't just good for debating Trump. It shows something particular about Clinton as a candidate. I think that's right. And and here's a place where I'm going to part with the widespread belief that the moderation was excellent. I don't think that debate was a good debate. Um, I think that Lester Holt... Uh, he he was tougher than Matt Lauer had been. Certainly, he did not let Trump get away with his most bald-faced lies, which is great. But that debate did not feature questions or follow-ups to questions that actually pushed the candidates on their policy knowledge really at all. Um, you, you were talking about Hillary Clinton's level of preparation. I completely agree. I mean uh, – <laughs> I, I think it was I think it was maybe you, Matt, who wrote that it was clear that Hillary Clinton would have happily spent another 90 minutes up there <laughs> yeah. fielding whatever questions uh, Holt wanted to throw at her. But even so, we did not see how prepared she was like at all, I think, um, because she never really got a hard question that whole night. Uh, the hard questions for the candidates took the form of things like. Donald Trump, do you feel bad about being a birther? Or right. Hillary Clinton, what's up with your emails? Or why haven't um, you released your tax or why returns? Have you, yeah, why have you released your tax returns? I mean, that was – it was kind of scandal-oriented. The hard questions – when you're in school <laughs> and you say like there were hard questions on the test, what you mean isn't that the teacher said, you know, oh, like isn't it true that last week when you asked out Stacy, you made a total fool of yourself? <laughs> like you mean that the questions are are hard, that you needed a deep body of knowledge to, to answer them. And this really didn't happen. I mean, this speaks to our, our earlier discussion about say, the structure of the economy. The candidates got asked, how would you make the economy better? That's not a hard, I mean, that is just tell me the first level of your plan. They didn't get asked, you know, isn't it the case that as we move from a manufacturing to service economy that we're seeing a systematic uh, polarization in wages such the middle level of the economy is being hollowed out and you have more at the top but also a much larger group at the bottom and that's what is behind a lot of our, our wage stagnation and how do you how do you fix that and also how do you account for it? Hillary Clinton actually can answer these questions. I, I will make a plug here. I think if you go to my interview with her, uh, I tried to ask her questions like that, and I think she broadly had informed, thoughtful answers to them. I don't agree with all of her answers, but but she was somebody who had thought about these issues. But I would really like these debates to push these candidates a little bit harder on how they think about the underlying problems in the economy. Uh, I think Hillary Clinton is ready for it. I think Donald Trump, if he's not ready for it, that should be exposed. But just – it is a really low bar to say to these candidates, hey, um, tell me what plans you've released and also respond to the most common criticisms of people levy at you. Uh, I think we can do better and, and, it, it, and I think we can do better not by asking like aggressive, mean questions that have a, a, like a knife's edge at the end of them, but questions that pretty simply just get to deeper parts of the economy. I mean, like a perfectly good question I would have really been interested to hear both of them answer is what do you think America's stance towards Russia should be right now? Should we treat it as a friend or a foe? And that's just a theory level question that is not hard, but 
you have to explain what you think. Yeah, I mean, I I have uh, some sympathy for for all sides of this. I mean, but part of what you know Holt was clearly trying to do was like have a debate. Sure. Um, rather than like a quiz, it'll be interesting to me to see what happens in the town hall because the town hall format is like, I think good. I think it's always good to just like hear what people ask uh, because um, uh, James Fallows wrote this a, a million years ago in, in like Why Americans Hate the Media. But it is still true that like what reporters always want to ask about is about campaign controversies. And they want to ask questions that are tough in like the Ezra sense, right? That it's like as a deep student of the campaign, you know that this is the question that the campaign does not want to address. Right. And that makes it tough, right? So it's like to the extent extent that Hillary Clinton doesn't want to talk about something, it's really important to raise it. Um, whereas like the voters mentality is different from that. They think about what is important in my life. And if what is important in your life is like when we saw this in New Hampshire, whenever candidates would do uh, voter things, but like a lot of people had opiate addiction on their mind. Mm-hmm. Now, I would never ask a candidate about that because I don't know. It, it it doesn't seem to me like a top 10 uh, national issue, but it clearly did to a lot of people in, in New England. So, so they ask about it. And no one is ever walking around real people being like, why haven't you released your tax returns? Because it's not it, – nobody's pro- big problem in their life has to do with Donald Trump's tax returns or, or Hillary's email server. And Trump has just like not addressed – the normal range of concerns that people have. Like, I could not tell you as a policy-oriented political journalist what Donald Trump thinks the federal minimum wage should be. I know that Hillary Clinton likes to drag up a, like, old quote from a long time ago where Trump said maybe the minimum wage should be lower. Um, But that's, like, itself just like a campaign line. He has no, like, position on it that I'm aware of. I'd, I'd kind of like to know. Um, as Ezra was saying, I, I think, I mean, this is in a way like a grading on a curve, but like I would be interested to see if Donald Trump can accurately state what the income cutoff points and tax rates are in his proposal. Um, I think I think he doesn't. And I think that that tells you – it doesn't tell you like everything you need to know about him, but it tells you like something important about it that he does not think – this kind of question, like, what do you actually do, um, is is all that significant. At the same time, you do risk a sort of an oddly moderator-centric worldview if you're just, like, peppering them with short sure. questions. Because, like, what you would tell a candidate to do is, like, Lester Holt asks you about something and you just go into your stump speech. Should we talk about a white paper? Let's talk about a white paper. Oh, the reason I, we're actually the here today. The reason we're really here today. Oh, man. was I ex- Well, first of all, NBR re- redesigned its papers, which is probably huge news here and nowhere else. But there are two columns now instead of one. Um, we sec- need to make a pilgrimage someday. We really need to Live them from NBER. We just <laughs> to the headquarters. It, it used to be on top of a furniture store. No, now um, it's like two columns. The graphs are scattered throughout instead of at the end. So it's a real big shakeup. And they released this amazing paper. So this is a paper about two things I really love. It is about health policy and it is about pets. And it's actually like a very interesting – it's a it's meaningful paper. I like that beyond. they're micro-targeting you. I feel like this is just like really <laughs> cliff bait right here. So – and it, it features one of my favorite economists, Amy Finkelstein, who's done a great study of the Oregon Medicaid program. So just like excellent study. So so what's I, interesting I, about – I liked Amy Finkelstein back when she was doing Medicare, <laughs> pri- Medicare drug prices. Amy Finkelstein, <laughs> Amy Finkelstein, Finkelstein hipster, hipsters, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Good for you guys. All right. Well, this is great. So what they do here is there's this argument that you see a lot in the healthcare literature that the reason healthcare is so expensive in the United States is because we all have insurance and we don't really pay for all of our healthcare. So I go to the doctor and I pay this like $10 co- – well, now it's like a $30 copay, but I don't really pay most of the cost. So why not go to the doctor a lot? And, and then there, there's this counter argument that's been emerging in the economics literature that says – Actually, I think we really value healthcare. That you know, as you get richer, as countries get more developed, one of the great things you can buy is a higher quality, longer life, and and that we are actually spending on healthcare because it's something we want to spend on, not because someone else is footing the bill. And this can be a hard thing to study because you can't really just take away some people's health insurance and see if they still buy medical services. But what you can do is look at another group that has medical needs 
and has a medical system and doesn't have much insurance. And that group is cats and dogs. So what they do here is they basically show that uh, veterinary spending and spending on pets is just going through the roof. It's it's growing faster than healthcare. And this, and you have this huge growth in um, in veterinary clinics. So one of the things they do is collect data on who works in veterinary clinics, how many vet clinics there are in the country, and they show that that's grown faster than the number of physician offices and the number of um, physicians in the country. And one of the last things they do is they look at spending on pets by by income. And you see, as you get up the income ladder, as you start having more disposable income, as is probably not a surprise to many pet owners, you start spending a ton more money on your pets. So it suggests when you have more disposable income, this is something people people want to spend money in. And then the last thing they look at is end-of-life care, which I thought was just – it was a sad chart, but also a really interesting one that also shows, again, much like American healthcare, spending on um, end-of-life care for dogs with lymphoma – it goes up just as quickly as for humans with lymphoma, once again suggesting it's not – we're not spending all this money on end of life just because insurance is subsidizing it. We're spending it because at the end of the life we we want to do this. We feel like it's it's something we want to spend our money on. We want to take whatever chance we can to get – to pay for additional life, additional quality of life, whether it is a human or a dog. Um, so I don't think this conclusively <laughs> – by any means, refutes the idea that insurance subsidies do increase the use of healthcare, and we have some other data kind of pushing back on this. But it's a really interesting study concept, and it's an interesting way to kind of look at this question that otherwise has proved very difficult for economists to study. I agree. This is a this is a great paper, and 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 it hits to something that is a bit of a hobby horse of mine, which is that our goal, the goal in American policymaking when it comes to healthcare, it tends to be quote, cutting costs. And I think it's pretty clear that it should be increasing value. So people like Peter Orzag or Paul Ryan will put up a chart showing CBO projections of healthcare spending over the next 75 years, which is also in itself kind of a crazy thing to do. Because if you you think about where healthcare was 75 years ago, um, we had barely started saving people's lives with antibiotics. Uh, But anyway, they'll put up these charts and it'll show that by, you know, 20 whatever, uh, healthcare will be 40% of GDP. People say, that's terrible. But is it terrible? Like, like how how do you know? If 40% of GDP spending, if spending 40% of GDP on healthcare was having us all live healthy lives until 200, maybe it's great. Uh, if we're not getting anything more than we're getting now, then it's clearly awful. But there is this, co- there's a discussion around cost that is quite unmoored from a discussion around quality. Now, there's some specific efforts to address costs that are also efforts to address quality. But but a lot of them, like, say, the excise tax on, on high-value health insurance are not. That, that is not trying to get higher quality health care in any particular way. It's just trying to cut down on cost. And this is a, a place where I think we've a little bit lost the thread that it's pretty clear that as society grows richer, people want to spend more on health insurance, uh, on health care. It's also pretty clear, I think, that we are not getting very good um, returns for marginal increased investment in health care. I think that uh, one thing that my interpretation of the Oregon Medicaid study, which Finkelstein and, and others did, what this study showed, um, it is a very, very fascinating randomized study uh, on when people get Medicaid uh, that took place in Oregon because of a lottery. And it showed that Medicaid was working as a health insurance system. It was covering people's costs. It was getting them access to doctors. They were using it. It was protecting them from from high expenses. But it just didn't seem to be improving their health all that much. And and people argue about whether the study had enough uh, power, size, and length to to really show that. But whether it did or did not, it struck me as very applicable to all of health insurance. Um, it was clear that Medicaid was getting people into the doctor, into the hospital. What was happening then wasn't working at least at the at least as effectively as we had hoped it would. And so I, I think it's pretty clear that we are wasting a lot of money on on healthcare. But I don't think it's obvious that the main thing we want to do is spend less money. I think the thing we want to be doing is getting more for the money we're spending. And we could have a uh, you know, federal healthcare policy that was really oriented towards that. It'd be a policy oriented much more towards research, much much more towards investment, much more towards increasing access to certain kinds of things for people who live in areas that maybe don't have good access to advanced medical centers. But we don't do that because we're very caught up, I think, in an erroneous view of, of cost. So, so two points on this. One is that I always think the, the measurement of uh, health outcomes in all of these surveys is, is a little bit 
misguided. Like I think of of my my baby who has been to the doctor. Um, it's got to be you know, a dozen or more times in the course of his short life. Um, he has never received medical treatment for any illnesses um, because he has thankfully never had a serious illness. He's been sick a bunch, which happens to little kids. And then I communicate with my doctor who has invariably said, that sounds like one of these things that happens to little kids. <laughs> um, we've spent a lot of money and the good people at Cigna have also spent a lot of money on this. And my uh, childless colleagues have indirectly subsidized it. Um, but Dr. Hay is providing a real service to the Iglesias Crawford household in all of this, like measuring of his head and being like, yeah, he's got a cold. It'll be okay." Or if he keeps vomiting for two days, then take him to the hospital. Right. This is she's doing like health consulting for parents like it's good. We would be really sad if all this time we had been under some weird rule or we were not allowed to bring our baby to the doctor. He would be absolutely 100 percent as alive today as he is now because he's been healthy. But it's like we didn't know that. Right. So that's like part of what 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 the doctor is there for. But I also want to hard pivot this back to where we started, <laughs> which is that I really think people should take service sector jobs more seriously, right? So like the median hourly wage for veterinarians, according to the BLS, is $42.54. Um, the the median annual income is, is $88,000. That's a good job. Um, we know these job opportunities not only aren't being outsourced to China, they are growing. They are growing at a rapid pace. Um, it is much more plausible that people are going to get ahead and work their way into the middle class by training to become veterinarians or possibly training to become some kind of lower level assistants who work in veterinary settings or possibly making a fortune as some kind of veterinary medicine entrepreneur <laughs> who comes up with a new model of, of doing this than it is that we are going to get tire factories back to becoming a major source of, of employment in the United States. And I know, I mean, fortunately, there's a podcast where you don't get hate lessons. But like, if I wrote this, if I wrote like, maybe people should learn to be veterinarians, people would people would rip me a new one. It's considered the like most outrageous thing to suggest that like, well, we could heal dogs and pigs and stuff. Um, but this is a service that there is evidently genuine demand for. If you could send Spencer to China and get him cured there on the cheap, <laughs> I'm sure you would do that. But like you can't. And okay, I would not send my dog to China just to put that I on mean, the if record. it worked. I'm not putting him on a plane to China. That's cruel. Okay, but that... At any rate, so I would take a teledoc from China, sure. maybe. We are agreeing. There is not a feasible <laughs> path. Through which I'd this like is, to talk more about spending, sending Spencer to this, China, this actually. Is, this, is, this is going to happen, right? Um, so it's not like we're living in this. If you stop thinking about stupid jobs and think about, like, your life or the lives of your friends, it's not like there's no services people are purchasing. Um, and it's certainly not like all the services you purchase are cheap and it's, like, all provided by minimum wage workers. Um, we have to, like, actually take seriously the kinds of employment settings that are growing and think about, A, if they are highly paid jobs, how do we connect people with those opportunities? And if they are not highly paid jobs, like what kind of systems and institutions would turn them into something more lucrative and more viable uh, to do? But like, Having politicians sit around arguing about who is going to, quote unquote, bring back uh, like semi-mythical jobs from – but it's not like a long time ago, the industrial heyday of the economy. It is like truly doing a disservice. And whether or not it's true that like this is what like the people – want to hear like they are doing themselves a disservice like we we could use like real solutions which may or may not involve helping your pet so i think one of the things that makes these particular and a lot of service jobs actually something we gravitate to it's kind of something you hit on so one idea you could say is that people value these things that they're buying right that like I care about my dog Spencer a lot, so I buy him, like, an absurd amount of veterinary care because he's always getting sick. Um, but I think actually what what feels a little more true and what you were talking about is it's more of like a case of asymmetric information where the vet knows something that I don't. The vet went to veterinary school and Jose's pediatrician went to medical school. 
And one of the reasons I feel like I end up spending an absurd amount of money at the vet is because my vet tells me to spend a lot of money and I don't want to seem like an asshole who like doesn't care about her dog. So he tells me about some vaccine and how like, well, he did have one pet who died from this. So then I decide like, okay, I'll spend like $50 on the vaccine. And I think that's a lot of when I think of what's going on and like why in both of these cases, we end up spending a lot of money, one with insurance and one without. I don't know if it's the case that it's offering this value that like we have all this high quality care that I can buy for my pet. Or if it's a case I just don't under it, it, they're both cases where you come to it without without good knowledge. Like I know how to shop for avocados. Like I know how to shop for groceries and things I buy on Amazon. I am less informed than my doctor. I'm less informed than my vet on how to decide like what things I need or don't need. And I think that is probably a driver of both of these types types of care, kind of putting the insurance part aside. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think that it is there's a tremendous amount of information asymmetry. And and, and to what you're saying, a lot of the spending ends up being spending to quell anxiety more than spending for a very specific purpose. Mm -hmm. One thing I will say about this, though, is I do think it speaks to why when you're trying to think about how to cut healthcare spending, whether for dogs or for humans, you really do need to focus more on doctor incentives. Uh, I think there is a tendency in in politics to really overfocus on consumer spending, Mm -hmm. to be looking at Copays and deductibles and high deductible health accounts and, and all these different things. And, and those can have an effect on, on the margin. But really, when you, go, when you go in and you get told like, hey, your wife needs something serious, you'll mortgage the house if you need to. And the question is whether you're getting advice from your doctor that is oriented towards doing more no matter the value or not. And and a lot of, I mean, this comes up in, in your excellent interview with Secretary Burwell, but a lot of the more promising and more interesting, I think, uh, proposals for how to cut healthcare costs are about changing a doctor's incentive so that they don't have an incentive to always propose more. I mean, something you see in England uh, where they're paid very differently <laughs> is uh, that they, you know, that the, you know, they're like as a cultural joke, right, the English stiff upper lip. But part of the reason it's a cultural joke is that. Doctors are making less money if they get you to do a lot of stuff, right? A lot of them get paid off of capitation. And as such, there's a lot more tough it out. Uh, whereas Kaiser Permanente, which I really liked, uh, the doctors that are paid on salary, they did not have an incentive to have me do more stuff. And so they were constantly telling me to just wait things out. And sometimes I'd wait them out and then ultimately need to get you know, the, them handled. But it, it really seemed real to me that they did not have the incentive to just – it. it Actually, it did not make them money to have me do another well, thing. Well, and it didn't cost them. Because I think one of the things, like, when I think about my vet is, like, there's no cost to them if yeah. I do a vaccine. Yep. And, like, so they always err on the side of, like— And they might make money. They might make money. But I think yeah. even if they weren't making more money, like, right. even if there's small value, like, they'll still—I I feel like you're still sold on it because they're like, well, better, there's this better safe than sorry— mentality yeah. that becomes pervasive and quite expensive. Yes. Yeah, so, so people I people I think can can figure out where they feel comfortable. Like I'm probably more of a salary person than a capitation person because I'm not sure how much I want the incentive to have me not do things either. But I, I, I very much take the point. Anyway, so I just think that so much of the power here resides with the high information medical professional, not the terrified patient that when you want to think about how to sustainably change what people buy or don't buy, you really should be thinking about how to change the high information providers incentives in terms of what they tell you to do, because you are probably anxious enough that you will do almost anything they so say. I, I generally agree with that philosophy, but it, but this is another reason why I do think that the, the veterinarian paper uh, is important, though, because it, I think it's possible when looking at, at health spending trajectories and rejecting some of the patient-centered models to go a little, like, overboard on the, like, your wife is sick, you're going to mortgage the house. Like, part of what we're seeing in the paper is, like, you know, people got by, like, 30, 40 years ago with, like, the attitude that, you know, the life of a dog is is cheap, like, easy come, easy go. It's not hard to find another dog. Um, you shut your mouth. As the res- resor- as the one non-pet owner on this, no, but like as show. the resources available to a typical middle class person to pour into this have grown, we have 
not we, but you, the pet, <laughs> the pet owners of America have decided not just to like change their relationship to veterinarians, but to change their emotional attitude toward pet health issues. Um, and that like that in its way is just is like sweet and, and touching and is a sign of an affluent society like allowing us to like feasibly expand our moral horizons and like care more about a wider set of of things and when you when you change you know incentive structures i mean th- different things will happen right but like part of what we are seeing is that a large share of the population would rather obtain excellent health care for their pets than buy a fancier car right and like that's I think at worst, just like value neutral. Um, at best, it's it's actually really kind of kind of nice, and that you are always going to see some version of this in, in the human services. That when you get to healthcare, because the government finances a lot of healthcare, because there's a sense that it's a social justice concern, or rather, we, you have I think a like a ping pong where like for social justice reasons, we have the government very involved in healthcare finance. Then because people don't like to pay taxes, there's like a lot of interest in like tamping it down. And then that's how you get into this like just like debate about like how can we squeeze the balloon and make it come out someplace else. But what's interesting to me about the veterinary care paper, right, is that like the government is just not doing anything in this space. But the like – uh, Baumol's law impact to like tend to drive prices higher and human sentimentality to like want to purchase these services just drives it up and up and up and up. And you could do something to stop that like if you wanted to or if we thought it was important to. But it's clear that just like the default mode is like people want to be caring. And and I think that's like that's nice um, unless we have some urgent reason to stop it. I'd like to end on a nice note. We almost never do that. That's great. We're nice. It's been another episode of The Weeds, a Vox.com and Panoply podcast. Thank you to my co-hosts, Matt Iglesias and Sarah Clift, our producer, uh, Theme Shapiro. Uh, We will be back next week, yeah? We'll be here. Yeah, next week. Same time, same place. All right. All right.